Page 316, if you recall, last week we spoke about the notion that Moshe, one way of reading the story of Moshe is that to some extent he is grappling with his identity. If you recall, we spoke about the fact that he comes out to see how his brothers are doing, but eventually he starts to be defined as an Egyptian man, an Ish Mitzri, right? He sits there, those missing years, we spoke about the fact that some suggest their reflection of Moshe grappling with, who am I? Am I part of this people? Am I not part of this people? And really, the catalyst for this crisis was the fact that Moshe tried to help. He goes to the field to help them. And what happens? He's rebuffed. He's told, who are you? What do you think you're doing over here? Right? And they basically push him away. They say, you're trying to help us? Get out of here. Right? And basically, at that point, Moshe learns that the people are apathetic. They're not interested in being saved. And it causes him his, his hope and his belief in the people to, to diminish and to be crushed and to be fractured. And that's why one of the reasons, in addition to running for his life, because Paro wants to kill him. But what we suggested was that one of the reasons Moshe runs is because he's also running away from the Jewish people. He doesn't feel connected, which is a shocking image. You know, when we think of Moshe, we, we associate him with the great leader of the Jewish people. And eventually he does become the great leader of the Jewish people. But in that initial stage, he very much feels an incredible distance from the people. Now, at the end of last week's Torah portion, what took place was this very long uh, dialogue between God and Moshe, where God ultimately persuades Moshe to go ahead and lead the Jewish people out of Egypt. And Moshe finally says, okay, I'm going. And Moshe starts to go. Okay, that's, that's where we left. Uh, that's, that, that's what took place. And then the last section of the Torah portion, last week's Torah portion, involves Moshe Go, Moshe and Aaron going to Paro and demanding for the Jewish people to be freed. And of course, what does Paro say? No, no, no. I will not. Yeah, he basically says, no, absolutely not. Okay. Now, what we sometimes gloss over the last few words in last week's Torah portion, that's where we're going to begin. And that is, uh, again, on page 316, and it is verse 20. Okay, verse 20, or Pasuk Chaf. Let's see exactly what happens. So this is, as Moshe is leaving the palace, as Moshe is leaving the palace, what happens is Paro is upset that Moshe, that the people are starting to get excited about going free. So what does Paro do? He goes ahead and gives them even harder work. He makes their life even more miserable during that time. So what does the Pasuk say? Look at Pasuk Chaf. Vayifku'u es Moshe ves Aaron itzavim likrasam. And so there were these people who were standing to encounter Moshe and Aaron as they left Me'ez uh, Paro, as they left Paro. Vayomra lehem, verse 21, or Chaf Al, And these people said to Moshe, Yere aleich Hashem aleichem v'yishbot. Hashem shall look upon you and judge you. Okay? Why? Asher yivashtem esrechenu. Because you've made literally like our smell or our scent abhorrent. Be'nei Faro, be'nei avadav, in the eyes of Paro and the eyes of his servants, to give a sword in his hand to kill us. So what happens, right? Basically, Moshe tries to get the Jewish people freed. He goes to Paro and Paro says no. Not only that, Paro starts enslaved, giving the work, making the work even harder for the Jewish people. And so now Moshe and Aaron, as they're walking through Egypt, guess what happens? Some Jews come and encounter them and they start yelling at Moshe, what are you doing? You're trying to free us. You're making our lives even more difficult. And actually some commentators suggest that who are these people who encounter him? The word nitzavim, standing, is a word that is found a couple of times in the Torah in relation to two people. Their names are Dasan and Aviram, the two people who ultimately are part of the rebellion in the times of Korach 
and who ultimately get killed with Korach. But they are also, according to many commentators, the two people, the two Jews who are fighting. Recall, last week we spoke about the two Jews who are fighting. Moshe tries to break it up, and what do they say to him? Moshe, what are you doing here? You're getting involved. You're trying to kill Egyptians to save us. Get out of here. So it's the same people who he encountered decades and decades ago, last time he tried to save the Jewish people. And if you recall, what happens when they start uh, responding to him in that fashion? Moshe says, forget it. These people have no hope. These people have no self-worth, no self-identity. They don't want to be saved. And Moshe's hopes are crushed. And so amazingly, he comes back 60 or so years later, right? And he tries again. And what happens? History repeats itself. The same group of people... The same story happens. It's a little different. The first time Moshe tries to encourage the people, inspire the people by killing an Egyptian and the people basically say, eh, right? And they, and they, they don't care for it and they yell at him for doing so. And now he tries to do something even greater to inspire the people. He goes to Paro and once again, they're hopeless. They basically say, Moshe, what are you doing? You're making our life miserable. Freedom? Eh, there's no choice. There's no chance. Get out of here. And they start once again. And so you could only imagine the feelings of Moshe. Again, especially in light of what we spoke about last week, how his, during those decades, he basically disassociated himself, not just physically, but emotionally with the people because he didn't believe that they believed in themselves. And God finally twists his arm and says, no, 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 go, inspire them, bring them out of Egypt. And again, he hits the same wall. You could only imagine at this moment how crushed Moshe actually is. Yes, Bill. In the first instance, he's actually trying to help them out saving them from the beating of the Egyptian taskmaster. Here, he's only made their life worse. In the short term, right. But, but recognize that, yes, he's made things worse. But that's a very, but in the big picture, what's he trying to do? Yeah. Okay. So exactly. That's, that's precisely what Moshe is grappling with. Moshe is coming in and, and the way we presented it last week, and we'll pick up on this theme, is that Moshe is this moral crusader. He sees injustices. Remember, he sees injustices not just with the Jewish people. He sees injustices by the well with people who are strangers. But Moshe is a moral crusader. He says, there's injustice. You should not be enslaved. And he tries to rally them. And you're right. They are only seeing bad things. But that's because, and again, absolutely, it's a response to their slavery. And Moshe recognizes that. But it's, it's tragic. And Moshe says, if they're not willing to endure any hardships to get freed, this is the people who are not ready to be free, right? Obviously, the path to freedom is going to be the path to anything good in life involves difficulties, right? If they want to change something, they were slaves for hundreds of years, they want to change that. Of course, it's going to involve difficulty. And here, they finally have a leader in Moshe, in Aaron, and they're ready to try to save them. They're, they're confronting Paro. Imagine that. And it gets difficult. And people say, ah, we don't want to deal with this. So I get it. But it's terrible and it's sad and it's tragic and it breaks Moshe. You can only imagine. And we don't have to imagine. Let's see how Moshe responds. Let's see what Moshe does. Moshe now turns to God. Okay? And he says, um, Moshe says, Vayomer, uh, excuse me, one second. I'm sorry? Okay. Um, so it says Moshe, Vayoshev Moshe el Hashem Vayomar. Pasuk Chavez, verse 22. Moshe returns to God and says, Hashem, God, Lama hare osa la'am hazeh. Why did you make things bad for this people? Why did you send me? So first of all, I just want to highlight. So Moshe says, I, I'm not helping, right? And let's, he spells it out. And from the moment I came to Paro to speak in your name, it became bad for this nation. And you didn't save your nation. So Moshe, in some ways, you know, again, he's crushed. He sees the people don't have the wherewithal. And he also, but he also identifies with their statements. He turns to God and he says, what's going on over here? You sent me to save them. But since I started my, my shlichut, since I started this, this uh, mission, it's been a disaster. It's been a disaster. 
So Moshe is taking that same exact complaint and now turning it to God. But what's interesting to me, I want to highlight, is how Moshe refers to the Jewish people. What does he say? First in verse 22, La'am hazeh, to this nation. What, what should he be saying? Ah, very good. Our nation, my nation, to us. Lama says, but this, this group over here, right? He basically is like at a, it's almost like he did, you know, when the recording could see me, but like, you know, it's like th- these people over here. Lama has that, this people. Ah, very good, very good. It says your stuff, your stuff, right? It's the words of the Russia, right? It's your work, it's not mine. And then he continues, look in verse 23. Since I came to Paro, la'am hazeh, again, that same terminology, to this nation, and you didn't save your nation, not my nation. So once again, and based on what we discussed last week, and to some extent, this is a continuation, we can understand where Moshe's coming from. Because again, Moshe had just spent 60 plus years away, not just because he's afraid for his life, but because he doesn't feel connected to the Jewish people. And finally, God says, no, 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 come back. It's changed. But he doesn't. He tries, and it doesn't. And Moshe basically reverts back to where he was for most of his life, where he says, this is not my nation. These are not my people. I believe in justice. They don't, they don't have that. And again, we could chalk it up to their slavery. It's not a judgment, but the point is, Moshe doesn't feel any kinship with these people. Okay, so let's, let's keep on reading. Let's keep on reading and see how God responds to him. Now, ultimately, we know, we know the end of the story. We know that Moshe is going to finally lead this people. So what is really interesting to me is to see these next few lines and to see how God ultimately persuades Moshe to lead the people. Because something obviously changes, right? We are, right now we've read, we've read, we've read, where Moshe first is distant from the people. And then God persuades him to come back. And now he's still distant from the people. And yet when he takes them out of Egypt, ultimately he becomes their savior. And he ultimately, by the time we get to the golden calf, he's willing to basically give up all of his olam haba, all of his reward in the world to come for the sake of the Jewish. He's, he's risks it all. So something dramatic has changed in the meantime. And what I'd like to argue, and this is not my own, this is primarily based out of the teaching of uh, Professor Yonatan Grossman, uh, but he, uh, basically the next few psukim is where much of that change, it's going to be subtle, so bear with me, but much of that, that change is going to take place. Is there another question? Is there a reason why the Torah paints Moshe so conflicted and questioning as opposed to being simply obeying God and it shows him very emotional and uh, unsure? Well, for I, I, well, I think clearly to, for us to learn something from it, and I think That's to me, to yeah, yeah, what, what? It, it, Moshe, this, Moshe is a human being to some extent, although he is the greatest of human beings according to our tradition, and attains ultimately attains a level um, on par with an angel. But it doesn't happen overnight. This is the most fundamental lesson that I have tried throughout all of our Chumash classes: is Avram's not born, Avram Avinu. Avram develops, Yitzchak develops, Yaakov develops, you know, all of these things are developed. They are as great as our sages paint them to be and greater. And we can't, you know, and there's a reason that they are the pillars of our faith, but it's worth our time. And I find personally for it to be incredibly inspiring to see a transition, to watch how Moshe's not immediately, I'm going to just do whatever. No, Moshe grapples. And, and to, 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 to add the question of what are we supposed to learn from it? You know, for ourselves, because sometimes we grapple with our relationship to the rest of the Jewish people, to with our relationship to our faith and to the sense of nationhood. And when we could see a Moshe Rabbeinu doing the same and ultimately coming to a resolution, ultimately coming to a place where he says, despite all that, I'm ready to take it on. 
I don't know. To me, right? To me, that, 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 that's, that's very heartening. That's very heartening. And the notion of the perfected, you know, person born at birth, you know, and sometimes these, these hagiographic, uh, you know, books, you know, you know, it's harder to relate. Again, there are some people who just, you know, I don't know. I remember some kids from school who were just born like, Pure. It's not, you know, doesn't, doesn't speak to me. I'm not, you know, it doesn't, but, but yeah, there are people like that, but, but the Torah isn't shy about painting the flaws and painting the struggle. With Moshe, I wouldn't even call this a flaw. It's a, it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle and an understandable struggle. And I think for many, a relatable struggle. Yes, Irma. Sure. I think it both stands in the way. I think Moshe's life growing up in the palace both stands in the way. And it is also simultaneously the greatest tool and the greatest gift. You know, the commentators ask, like, clearly there's divine providence ensuring that Moshe grows up in the palace. What's that all about? And there are a number of different approaches. One approach, I don't remember now which one of the Rishon and which one of the medieval commentators says this, but one of them suggests that had Moshe grown up on the slave fields with his brethren... He, he would be where they are and wouldn't even have the, be able to entertain the notion of freedom. He had to taste freedom himself in order to be the one to paint that picture for others. And therefore, on the one hand, yes, it creates a natural distance. And at the same time, it also gives him the ability to dream of something that his brothers and sisters are not, you know, had never experienced. So, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a drawback, but it's also something which I think benefits. So before we read how God responds, let's look and see how God, in, what God tells him the very first time. We're going to flip back a few psukim. Um, let's go all the way back to um, 302, page 302. Okay. And this, and eventually we're going to get back to our Torah portion. We're still back to Shemos, but this contrast is very important. We're going to read the very first um, set of instructions that God gives Moshe. When God tells Moshe, I want to save the Jewish people, let's read carefully and see how God frames the problem and the solution, right? You know, we all know the problem is the Jews are in Egypt and they have to go to Israel, right? But how does God frame that problem? You know, there's so many ways we could tell any story. And how does God choose to say the story? We'll have to see how he does so initially. And then we'll see, as, as, as we'll see, things change. So if you look at page 302 and we begin on verse seven or Pasuk Zion. So if a Yomer Hashem, this is God's opening uh, story that he's telling Moshe. He's telling Moshe what, what's going on over here. I saw, I've surely seen, I've surely seen, excuse me, the oppression of my nation that are in Egypt. And I've heard its outcry because of its uh, oppressors. I know the people's pain. And I will go down to save them from the Egyptians. And to lift them up from that land. The good land, uh, expansive land. Uh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the land of these nations. Verse 9. The cries, the outcry of the Jewish people have reached me. And I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Verse Yud. And now I will send you to Paro so that they will take my people out of Egypt. That's God's opening directive. Okay? The story is, you know, he tells them the story, what's going on, and this is what I want you to do. So why does God, in this framing, 
Why is God sending Moshe to save the Jewish people? What is the reason behind this? Why are the Jewish people going to be freed from Egypt? What's the catalyst for this? What's the, what's the issue that, that God is responding to that, that Moshe is going to help, uh, help bring about? Affliction, right? In other words, there is oppression, right? The words that keep on coming up is, I hear the cries of the Jewish people. I see the oppression of the Jewish people. I see the taskmasters of the Jewish people. The, I, I've heard their, their outcry, it's reached me, and I'm going to do something about it, right? It's being framed entirely as a situation that revolves around injustices and, and a sense of oppression and God coming to save those who are oppressed, right? This is a very what I would call a universal storyline, right? This is not about the Jewish people per se. It's about oppression, right? They're referred to as my, my people. But ultimately the theme, the main theme that comes out of that initial directive is one of oppression. There are, in, there are injustices taking place. There are people who are being oppressed. God says, I'm going to save them. Moshe, I need your help. I need your help. I want your help, whatever. Okay. Now, this makes sense with what we know about Moshe at that juncture. Recall, Moshe has walked away from the Jewish people, right? Moshe does not feel connected to the Jewish people, but he is someone who is burning with, uh, you know, ju- uh, zeal for justice. Remember, he goes and saves these strangers, these women, by the, by the well, because he sees an injustice being, act, uh, being performed. So Moshe is a, you know, what we'll call like a social justice crusader. I, I, bad association, maybe. But, but the point is, he is someone who, uh, you know, cares about injustices in the world, and God appeals to that. God says, okay, there's injustice in the world. Moshe, we need you back here. It's not about the Jewish people. We need you back here. That's how Moshe is initially instructed. And then what happens? Let's go, let's go fast forward now to what we just read. Moshe comes back to the Jewish people and he says, fine, I see an injustice. I'm going to act upon it. And what happens? The people are being oppressed. Says, we, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't really want this. We, we, it's, it's not helpful. Harder. Correct. But what is the meta message? I'm not talking about the words, right? They said you made our life harder. Since you came here, Moshe, what are you doing, right? Uh, yeah, God should judge you. You've made our lives miserable. What are they ultimately, they, they, those are not the words they said, but what is the message they're conveying? And uh, clearly, as Moshe responds to, to God, clearly the message they're conveying is, is this is not working. My, 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 me coming here is not helping them. What's going on over here? And basically, this, you know, the people have said to him, you're not helping. And Moshe got that message. And that's why Moshe turns around to God and says, I'm not helping. And so if you are trying to save someone from injustice and they're saying, well, I don't need your help. I don't want to be helped. Okay. Yeah, I tried, right? We have, we have a teaching. You know, we help people who want to be helped. If they don't want to be helped, okay, we try. But that seems to be what's going on. Again, Moshe, the moral crusader. It's not about the Jewish people right now. It's about slaves who are being oppressed and Moshe is being called upon to help them. And, the peop- and, and Moshe sees that he's unsuccessful. And more importantly, the people are pushing back and saying, we don't, this is not, you're making our life more miserable. You're not helping us. And so Moshe recognized and turns back to God and said, this is a waste of our time. What am I doing here? Uh, yes. There are meaning to, in fact, page 302, it says, and you shall take my people, children of Israel, out of Egypt. He didn't say your people. Good, good. That, that would seem to follow this, right? That would seem to follow this line of thinking. Excellent, excellent. Excellent, right? It seems to follow this line of thinking. Moshe doesn't feel connected to the people. Correct. And it's a reflection of Moshe. Moshe's not connected. Moshe doesn't feel a sense of connection to the people, and God's saying, this is, this is about me. I need you as a moral crusader to come and help save the day. Let's see how things change, though. Let's keep on reading. Let's go to the bottom of page 316, and here's where we start to see a shift. God says to Moshe, 
you will see what I will do to Paro. Kibiyad Chazaki Shalchem, God will, they will be sent out with a strong hand. Uviyad Chazaki Garshemi Arzon, with a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. And now, we'll see, I think, in these next few psukim, how things start to shift. Vayidaber Elokim El Moshe. And God speaks to Moshe, Vayomer Elav Ani Hashem. He says, I am God. Which is tr- funny, because, you know, we would think that they, they've been speaking for all this time, right? Why is he saying, I am God? Okay, so that means that each name of God has a different connotation. It's not like he didn't know who he, that he Moshe, of course, knew he was speaking to God all along. When he says, Ani Hashem, the name Hashem has a certain connotation. And that connotation, the commentators suggest the word Yud, Hey, and Vav, Hey, refer to time. Haya, Hove, V'yiyeh. The sense that God was, He is, He will be, He transcends time. There's the sense of God ensuring that, that there is a connection between the past, the present, and the future that only God could ensure. And we'll see the contrast. I appeared to the forefathers with a different name, El Shaddai. The word Shaddai, without getting too deeply into that, the word Shaddai comes from the word Dai, which means Dai means from Dayenu, enough. There's a limitation. Hayahovaviyah refers to everything. There's no limitations. The name Kel Shakai or El Shaddai refers to something which is limited. Ushmi Hashem Lunodati Lahem. The name, this name of past, present, and future, I never revealed to them. What that means, what that means, the commentators explain, is that the forefathers, bless you, the forefathers only experienced the here and now. They they got promises, they received promises, which we'll hear in a moment, but they never saw a fulfillment of those promises. Moshe, God is saying, you are going to experience something else. You're going to experience not a limitation. You're going to experience the God who transcends all limitations. And we'll see how. Okay? Let's read on. Vigam hakimosi as brisi itam, laseis lahem as eretz kenan, as eretz migurem ashigaruva. I have or I will fulfill the promise, the covenant that I made to them to give the, the land of Canaan to them or to their descendants. And I heard, I heard the cries of the Jews, which the Egyptians are enslaving them. And I remembered my covenant. So all of a sudden we have some new ideas which are emerging over here in this new directive, right? The last time God spoke to Moshe, he said, there's injustice in the world. People are suffering. Go save them. Now God is invoking something else. He's saying, wait a second. Let's go back a little bit. There's a promise. I had a relationship with their forefathers and I remember that promise, okay? Now, now all of a sudden, we're not talking about the present anymore. We're not talking about the current injustice anymore alone. We're talking about something much broader. Let's, let's read on. Pasuk Vav. And therefore, with this in mind, and more in Yisrael, tell the Jewish people, Ani Hashem, I am God. I will take you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will save you from their slavery. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. And here's the key line. And, and these are new words which weren't mentioned before. I will take you for me to be my nation. All of a sudden, God is telling Moshe, tell the Jewish people, you're not just a people who are being oppressed. It's not just another story of injustice, but rather I want you to be my people. 
and I will be your God. Again, these are new ideas. These are ideas that you and I take for granted. We have to read these with fresh eyes. This is the first time these ideas are being presented to Moshe and therefore to the Jewish people. Okay? And you will know that I am Hashem, your God. Who takes you out from the burdens of Egypt. So now they're being taught there's a whole new reason. There's a whole new reason. The reason is more than just you. It's about a promise. And it's more than you just being a random people. It's because I want you to be my people. And I will bring you to the land that goes back to your ancestors. And I will give it to you as an inheritance. Okay. So, so first of all, so you realize, you see, that this new message is radically different than the last one. The last message was about an injustice. This message is about a promise. It's about a covenant. It's about a peoplehood. None of that existed beforehand. All these are new ideas that God is now introducing Moshe and the Jewish people to. Now, it's worth noting what happens. Moshe shares this message to the Jewish people. Moshe, they couldn't hear it. Because of the shortness of breath and hard work. Sometimes this, I think Bill was alluding to before, you know, we're, we're in such a bad place that we can't hear the words of hope. We can't hear the words of inspiration. We can't hear, imagine a, a reality different than the one we're experiencing. And so we just, we just don't accept it. We don't accept it. Okay. Yes, Tina. I have a question on the tense here. On the tense that are used. Yeah. Um, you know, I took you, uh, you know, and I took you, uh, I'm not sure. You're saying something in the future. You say, I need, I need I will do so, yeah. So there's something very interesting you find in the prophetic voice. And very often, what did not yet take place is presented in the past tense. And the commentator suggests that that is meant as a reflection of the, the seriousness and the commitment of the prophecy. It's as if it already took place. You'll find that throughout, not just with Moshe. You find it the least with Moshe, I believe. You find that in the later prophets, they constantly will speak in the past tense about something that has not yet taken place. Again, as a way of saying, it most certainly will take place. Again, they're, they're, they're speaking from God. It's as if it happened already. From God, like, when it's a, consider it done, right? So that when God speaks, consider it done. That, that's so why sometimes with prophecies, you'll find it in the past tense, even though it's... Yeah, it was a little confusing. Yeah, it is, it is, it is confusing. It is confusing. Yes, Bill. What is the meaning with this, which I raised my hand to give it to Abraham? Raised my hand? What's the, the expression seems to be an expression of basically God has made, taken some steps, so to speak. Like, raise my hand, it's like you find like a sense of like doing something. Um, right? I, I've raised, not like... Yeah, whether it's an oath, I, I don't, I'm not sure. The, the, the oath is invoked earlier. I, I don't know if it refers more to, to an oath, more so to a sense of like, a, like, a, like some, some steps forward, like I, that I've already, like I'm, I'm, I'm doing something, like I'm, I'm raising my hand, like I'm raising my hand in action. Like there's a sense of God is, is actively pursuing it. In motion, right, exactly, exactly. Okay, so, so far again, I know this is, this is not the most exciting narrative. I don't know, this, this, this passage excites me a lot. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because when we think of the story of the Exodus, what do we think about? We think about the plagues, that's exciting, right? We think about, uh, for some, we think about them, the splitting of the sea, that's exciting. Those are stories. These are just words, but I like words. So uh, bear with me, you're in my class today. Uh, so, so but, but I find it so fascinating because the message, the stories we tell, right? It's so, you know, it's well known in the world of advertising nowadays. You know, if you want to really capture someone's emotions, capture someone's attention, you don't tell facts, 
You tell a story. Obviously, you want the story to reflect facts. But when you incorporate it into a story, it engages people, right? Instead of just saying, this is what you should do. I tell you a story. We tell a story. And, and within the story, it captures our stories, capture our emotion. So when God is telling, you know, the story. So when God is telling Moshe the, 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 the why behind why he should go, right? He's painting a problem for him. The story and the issue that he's painting is dramatically different from the first time to the next. The first time it's that universal story of injustice. The second time, all of a sudden, Moshe, God introduces a new idea, which was not on anyone's radar. It's an idea of a covenant, this longstanding relationship that Moshe, that God has with, with, with the ancestors, with Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and the fact that the, this promise is something which, and, and the fact that God says, I want these people to be my people. I want to have a relationship with them. And that's why he wants Moshe to go. So let's listen very closely to see if there is a shift, any form of a shift in Moshe's speaking. Because at first glance, the next passage you're going to read doesn't seem like it. But I would argue, tell me if you agree or disagree, that there is a small shift. Okay, let's see how Moshe responds. Because again, Moshe goes to the people it's too grand of a mission, too grand of a vision. They can't hear him. Now God says to Moshe saying, Bo daber al-paro. Again, we're at Pesach Yud Aleph 11 on page 320 or 321. Come speak to Paro, the king of Egypt. And he should send the Jewish people from his land. And Moshe said before God saying what? Hain b'nei Yisrael o'shamu elai. The children of Israel did not listen to me. How will Paro listen to me? And I have some form of a speech impediment. So, did Moshe shift in any way? No, I was just thinking, because it, it was brought to my attention at another time, that um, first I think um, Hashem says, Vayomer. And now he's saying, Excellent. 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 Good. So, so God is also speaking. We, we, the commentators point out the word, there are two ways to say, and he said. One is Vayomer and one is Vayidaber, right? You can even hear in the words. Vayomer is a softer word. Vayidaber, right? Those that hit your lips. Daber are stronger words. And, in, in, and the, we understand that, we understand that the connotation is Vayidaber is a stronger form of speech. And so initially God had spoken to Moshe in a softer tone about this mission. And here it's stronger. Good. So that's in terms of how God speaks to him. Do we see in Moshe's words to God that there is any shift in his thinking? Or not? Or Moshe is still basically saying, I don't want to go. He is saying, I don't want to go, right? He's yes. explaining why he wants to go. Good. So he explains why he doesn't want to go. That's good, right? He explains why he doesn't want to go, which is, which is different than just saying, I don't want to go. I'm just giving an ex- explanation. But there's something else. It's subtle, but I think it's very important. How did Moshe refer to the Jewish people the first time around or the last dialogue we saw? What? Your people, your nation, right? He doesn't even call them by name. It's your nation or these people. There's nothing special about them, right? But how does he refer to them over here? Pasuk Yudbeis, 12. Hain b'nei Yisrael, the children of Israel. Oh, all of a sudden, he gives them a certain honorific. He gives them a certain, he no longer says, right? Do I say, you know, you or by call you by name? Does it make a difference? Of course it makes a difference. If I just say you or I say, or this person over here, or I say, you know, Dina Cotton, sorry to pick on you. Okay, right? And, and, you know, it makes a difference, right? Of course, one is basically a dismissive term and one is giving credence, giving, giving kavod to the person, 
right? There's a huge difference, right? So although it's true, Moshe is still struggling. He doesn't want to go and he's pushing back. But when God introduces this new idea, this new idea that it's not just about an injustice, it's about a peoplehood. It's about there's something special here that you're not seeing that I see, says God. Moshe shifts as well. And now Moshe no longer sees himself as completely separate from the people, but rather he starts to see them as a special people. And here I want to add something, which I think is very important. Very, very important. How is Moshe, Moshe's relationship to his parents, the first time we're introduced to Moshe, how are his parents, what are the names of his parents? Does anyone know? Well, look back. Watch this. You're going to see something crazy, I think. Okay? Um, if you look all the way back to page 296, 296, and hold the page because we're going to come right back to this passage over here. If you go back to page 296, this is chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2. We'll read it in English. Okay, I'll read it on page 297. Okay, I'll just start reading. A man went from the house of Levi and he took a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was good and she hid him for three months. She could not hide him any longer, so she took for him a wicker basket and smeared it with clay and pitch. She placed the child into it and placed it among the reeds at the banks of the river. His sister stationed himself a distance to know what would be done with him, etc., etc. And then he's found and then he's saved. Fine. What are the names of his parents? We know that. What are the names of his father? Amram. We know that. The Torah doesn't say that. It almost as if like there's these two anonymous people who gives birth to this boy, who the passage tells us is going to be called Moshe. A man went from Levi and married a woman from the tribe of Levi. Why not tell us their names? Isn't it strange? The Torah doesn't tell us the name of Moshe's parents when we're introduced to Moshe. And there are different explanations as to why this is. But it's interesting that it doesn't tell us his name. It's almost like he has no connect. There is, they're just two anonymous people. Okay? But now look to what, we, what we're up to. Go back to page 320. Okay, because something fascinating happens in the middle of this whole dialogue where Moshe is developing, and I'm arguing, more of a connection to the Jewish people. Because all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, if you look at verse 13, right? Look at verse 13 on page 320 or 321. Hashem spoke, I'll in English. Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron and commanded them regarding the children of Israel and regarding power king of Egypt to take the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These were the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuven in the first, is the firstborn of Israel. Chano, Chenpalu, Chetron, Karm, etc., etc., etc. The sons of Shimon, etc., etc. Then it tells the sons of Levi, etc., etc. If you turn the page, it brings you the whole lineage of the tribe of Levi. And then it says in verse 20, Aram, uh, Amram, excuse me, verse 20 on page 323. Amram took his aunt, Yocheved, as a wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moshe, the years of Amram's life, etc., 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 and, and then, it, okay, and all of a sudden, we are for the first time told who the parents of Moshe are, and they're given names. What's his, yeah, all of a sudden, we're given the yichus. It's so strange. If I were telling the story, I'd give the yichus in the beginning, but the Torah deliberately does something which is jarring, and in the initial, again, on page th- whatever it was, three, whatever it was, when we were in chapter two, when it first introduces them, it doesn't tell us their names at all, and only over here... Does it now say, these are the families of Reuven. These are the families of Shimon. These are the families of Levi and Amram and Yecheved. And they gave birth to Moshe. Why the change? Why the change? And I think the answer is obvious based on what we're describing. Moshe, until this juncture in history, never had a connection to the people. 
Moshe was at a distance. Yes, of course he had a father, and the father happened to be Jewish. And of course he had a mother, and the mother happened to be Jewish. But we describe the past 80 years of his life, he's grappling with this identity. Are they my people? Are they not my people? He is, a, again, he's a powerful crusader for justice in the world. But he is not a Jewish person. He tries. Again, remember last week, he goes to the fields to see how his brothers are doing. But within a few verses, he's described as an Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man, because he doesn't feel that kinship. He doesn't, these aren't a people. And now he hears God speaking about how much he loves them, how much he cares about them, how much God wants to look out for them and will look out for them. And that forces Moshe to reconsider and reassess, how do I look at these people? And we, 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 the reader, who sometimes grapples, maybe we do, with our relationship to our fellow Jews. And we think about how does God describe the Jewish people should perhaps emulate what Moshe does and start to reconsider and say, yeah, maybe I have my issues. But God, who I try to emulate, yeah, looks at these people and says, I have a covenant with these people and I love these people and I will always care for these people no matter what. And Moshe starts to re-identify himself and say, you know what? I'm a Yehudi. I am a Jew. These people are B'nai Israel, And my father and mother, Amram, Levi, yeah, excuse me, Yocheved. And they go back to Levi and they go back to Israel. I am a part of B'nai Israel. And so what happens over here, what we're witnessing Again, very subtly, I'll tell you, personally, I glossed over the, these are the least interesting verses in the story. I like the stories. This is just background stuff. I glossed over it, but, but the contrast between our original introduction to Moshe, his struggle, which is, we learned last week through the silence of Moshe. Remember, the silence is deafening. It doesn't tell us what Moshe is experiencing, but we suggested what was going on as Moshe was grappling internally. Am I connected? Moshe's coming back and trying to save the Jewish people and still hitting the brick wall. But now there's a new element introduced. God is telling him it's not just about justice, although that's part of it. It's about peoplehood. It's about being a Jew is not just being a good person on your own. It's about looking out for your, part of it is looking out for your own family, the rest of the Jewish people, even when we don't see their greatest colors shine through. We still have an obligation to do so. We have to reflect God's love. And Moshe starts to learn that message. Yes, he's still struggling. And ultimately he does lead them. He's still giving excuses. Ani vasayim. But he calls them B'nai Israel, and boom, at this moment, all of a sudden, the shift happens. And therefore, at this moment specifically, and the commentators also struggle, why are we all of a sudden give the yichus? What's this doing here? What it's doing here is because now Moshe finally is taking his yichus seriously. It's real to him. His connection to his ancestors, his connection to the Jewish people is real to him. And this is really the beginning of Moshe becoming the leader of the Jewish people. He is not born a leader of the Jewish people. It takes him time. It takes him a lot of reflection, but ultimately he becomes someone who is able to look out for the Jewish people, to care for the Jewish people, and emulate God's love for the Jewish people, which he exemplifies to the greatest degree. Yes.